This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as a wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. Waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. Welcome everybody to Twig 143 and we have probably never had one of the hosts being in such a marvelous location as Mr. Eric Suford. So where are you right now? Somewhere in Caribbean? Yeah, I'm in St. Thomas, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay, well that looks pretty bad and you're just drinking beer on a patio with a perfect weather and... Oh, it's just it's LaCroix. Oh, come on. Uh, maybe it'll be a, it's, it's a it'll beer. Be a beer later. So we got three topics today we're going to talk about, well... The most difficult one is going to be, of course, Activision Blizzard sued over frat boy culture and harassment. That's going to be an interesting discussion. We're going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook metaverse interview. So that's going to be an interesting one. 
And a third topic for today is going to be Tilting Point raising $235 million to fuel expansions and acquisitions. So I'm not going to even ask how Eric Suford is doing. Eric Chris, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, apart from being muted. Oh, I was wondering why everyone was ignoring me because I've been muted this whole time. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I'm doing well. This is a really slow time for me because of uh, everyone's on vacation. So I'm, I picked up Final Fantasy. After talking about it in the podcast and listening to some coverage, I started playing Final Fantasy. And with all this Blizzard news, I'm, I'm not feeling very good about playing World of Warcraft. So trying out Final Fantasy, kind of getting into it. It's good. If you did, The problem with Final Fantasy is if you don't like anime, you're not going to like Final Fantasy, no. really. But the anime is a little bit off-putting for some, but I, I don't mind it too much. So anyway, no, it's, good. it's a really over, good game. I can't get to anime games. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> I never watched them as a kid. And it's just, yeah. it's not yeah. a thing. Like, I also don't play Pokemon. Like, it's, I feel it's childish, but that's just because I didn't watch the cartoon. Like, I could be, you know, I can go in all in on Sonic but Every, like, I, I swear to God, at least once or twice a year, I hear the same thing from these anime fans is that anime is coming to the West. Anime is coming to the U.S. Like no. it's really popular. And I'm like, you know, it's not it's not popular. It's not very popular at all. It's not like it's going to get very popular, you know. So, yeah, just keep dreaming. Right? Yeah. But, uh, anyway, the game is very well designed. So how about the uh, how about the uh, the Amazon MMO? What was what, what's the what's going on with that? Like that has been. One of the most outed and talked about MMO. Yeah, I mean, I I've been playing it for a while, like for some alpha stuff, and and I mean, for actually a few months now. And it's not a bad game, but it's just not. It's actually, in all honesty, the the, the reviews I'm hearing are actually relatively positive. Like mm-hmm. it has some good aspects to it. I just don't know if it's going to be as compelling, and they really need to hit. You know, and I don't think it's it. That's it, really. But it's a beautiful game, you know, and, you know, it, 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 requ- it requires more action combat instead of tab targeting, which is some somewhat of a, of a could be a restraint for some people to get into because it's something you have to be really active in playing. But yeah, we'll see. I don't expect much, honestly. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm about to start playing Contra. It was launched by Timmy Studios today on, of course, Google Play. That's where everybody launches their games nowadays is first. I'm excited. Just downloaded it. I'm going to blast after, after, this, after this little chat we have here. But, oh, and yeah, Adam is out today. A little family thing. So wish him all the best and probably be in next week. Let's jump into updates. Sure. Let's do it. All right. My, my set of updates. So first one, Scopely has invested $50 million into multiple European gaming studios, Pixel Toys, Omnidrone, and Tag Toys. So Pixel Toys is a mobile and VR developer. They have a game called Gunfinger and also Warhammer 40,000 Battle Sisters. I'm, I'm a little bit confused. There's so many Warhammer games, so I'm not sure which one <laughs> of this, this one is. But nevertheless, the second studio is Barcelona-based mobile developer Omnidrone. And they are currently working actually with Scopely on unannounced mid-core title. And the third one is the Tag Games, which previously worked on CSR 2 with Natural Motion and on the iOS version of Might and Magic Clash of Heroes for Ubisoft. So what Scopely is doing here is they're buying more capable studios to execute on the various IPs they have access to. And, you know, we've we've did did the interview with with Scopely's co-CEO, Javier, way back and essentially, in a nutshell, their model is that they have 
a team inside Scopely, which is built out of genre experts and, and really industry experts. They have this platform and set of tools that allow them to scale games efficiently, analytics, you name it, they have it internally and what they're doing. And then they have a great capability in business developments so are able to acquire different sort of top IPs. And what they do is they find studios that can execute on command in specific genres. So I think this is just a uh, a step of what they've been doing before. They're buying more capable studios to execute on on multiple different top of the food chain IPs that they have. They must have signed. And yeah, any comments on that? No, I, I will say that Warhammer is one of those IPs that has like bajillion games on the App Store. It's like, they need to clean that up, man. It's like, I, there's just no way they need that many games. It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> That's just my advice. Yeah, I would... Uh... I think is is Barcelona is becoming like the new epicenter of mobile games development in the world, right? Like if you yes. think about all, the companies, it, it feels. I mean, it feels like a lot of them are. It'll be like the second, like the the, the first sort of non HQ studio would be launched in Barcelona, right? Like Triple Triple Dot, which is based out of London. They just raised a huge round. They opened a Barcelona studio. Tilting Point, which we're going to discuss later, opened like their second studio in Barcelona. I um, mean, you know, King has had a the second studio in Barcelona. Well, I guess it, that was like a third or fourth studio in Barcelona. Ubisoft, uh, Game colleague. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like, yeah. Did King ever even make any games out of Barcelona or did they yeah. cancel all those? Yeah. yeah no, no. They made a lot of, they, so basically, our old colleague from Digital Chocolate kind of left to go open up King's yeah, studio now. in Barcelona like back in, what, 2000. 13 or something yeah no no i totally remember that what have they published like what games i think they, they did a, i think they did a couple of the candy crush uh, x games um oh. i don't remember which ones but I, i'm pretty sure they did but i think they were also, I thought, they were like i thought that oh, yeah. sorry I, i'm sorry to interrupt you I, I thought that whole group was designed to build something outside of the candy crush universe and like build like they also games. had they also had a mid-core arm and and eric is correct like the others the the King Studio in Barcelona was started by Manel and some of the uh, the core team that worked at Digital Chocolate. And fun fact, the uh, the Scopely Studio that was acquired Omnidrone was the second person who was running that studio with Manel. So it was Manel and Gerard. Gerard, uh, yeah, those two were running the uh, the Barcelona Studio, and they kind of split as as the other guy went to start the uh, the King. Yeah, but anyway, so what Barcelona has been doing as of late, I believe that they had their focus on live ops there. So what they have been doing is they've been having a lot of these sort of like their legacy games, which are quite big games as it is. And they've been trying different things, different sort of a PME stuff with those games and and optimizing them and then kind of taking the learnings throughout their whole portfolio. In addition to, of course, making a lot of different new games, both in the casual sector. And I think before, I'm not sure if they still do it, but at least before they had a pretty big group that was focusing on mid-core game or more like, you know, games maybe towards a different audience than the, uh, the typical King audience. And I believe at some point they had almost thousand, like this is, this is just me not remembering correctly. I've, you know, I've, talked a lot to the King Barcelona people, but I think they had like hundreds of people, maybe like 600 people or something like that employed in Barcelona. So it's been a huge center. But It, just, it feels like, uh, I don't know, that it just feels like it's the new hotspot. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just like, it's like recency bias or something, but I feel like I'm always hearing about companies opening up a second studio in Barcelona or a third studio yeah. in Barcelona, which I mean, makes sense because from a location standpoint, just it's easy fantastic. to get around, yeah. um, and you know who wouldn't want to live there, right? And, it's easy to and recruit. Here, 
and then also uh, Spain has this Beckham law. So that's, uh, that's another one that is in their favor. So the taxation is quite low. So if you're coming out of US, uh, I believe you're, or, or any other country, I believe they set your tax, tax rate to a flat, it was 20 something. So when they're able to pay pretty high salaries as, they, as all these big companies are, and you have this flat tax rate, now we're talking, and Barcelona is a cheap city compared to all the other big European cities. The, the living costs, the, uh, the restaurants, you, know, you, know, you name it, they're quite cheap compared to you know, the Helsinki's and the, and the London's of the world. So 100%, I think it's overheated already. They're, literally everybody has their studio there, up to uh, Zepto Lab, you know, the game loft, you, you name it, they have their studio there. So, but it is a, it's a, it's a hot spot for sure. All right, moving on. All right. Shout out to Barcelona. Great, great city. Anyways. So the second, second update, Jam City and DPCM Capital mutually agree to terminate business combination agreement. So Jam City announced its intention of going public after acquiring developer Ludia this May. Then at that point, the mobile developer was valued to go public at 1.2 billion valuation. And then this week, and we're now in, in July, end of July, a mobile developer, Jam City, has announced that it has ended its previous plans of going public. Now, really weird news. So I went to Sensor Tower. I looked at their revenue data and, you know, there's no issues apart from maybe a tiny slip during the last couple of months. And that could be really attributed to, to anything. So I wasn't analyzing too deeply. But then I started looking at the installs and the, the, the monthly installs have been halved since the beginning of the year. And in my opinion, like when these type of massive drops in daily new users happen, that has to turn into decline of daily active users, which in turn results in inevitable decline in revenue. So I think that might have played the role, but this was my you know five minute analysis on Sensor Tower. What do you guys think? <laughs> So there's really no comment on this. It says basically current market conditions is the reason that they're pulling the SPAC. But if you remember when we talked about this, like, I don't know, a month or so ago in May, the, it, was, it was clear since that time that the stock that was supposedly representing the SPAC didn't have much movement, right? So Wall Street was kind of cool on this idea. And we were actually re relatively negative on, on Jam City in particular because of their pipeline and also their declining revenues into the IPO. But, you know, you also, when you look at market conditions, you kind of think about like what's going on with the other companies that are going public and then uh, the SPACs and some of them have been do doing quite poorly, you know, of skills, which is a criminal organization, iron source, you know, and play studios have all been disasters from a SPAC perspective. And then the really? IPOs. Oh Yeah. And then the IPOs of Playtik and Applovin are well below their IPO price. Yeah. So they're all, everyone's performing pretty poorly. And I think, again, part of it's, as we've said many times, is like none of these, some of these companies just shouldn't be publicly traded companies. Like they're not ready to do that. And Jam Sydney in particular was really growing slowly and also very unprofitable relative to the comparables. And it just seems like they couldn't get any interest from investors on this stuff. So and I, th I still think there's an overhang of IDFA that people are really worried about. And we're starting to see the impact at the tail end of this last quarter and then the beginning of this quarter. And so a lot of these companies are, are expectations are set around the idea that they can scale core games, right? It's <laughs> so like, you know, whether it's casino or whether all these other things that Jam City was working on. But I don't think that's going to be easy in these current conditions. So we shall see. Yes, yeah. by no means an expert on SPACs. I think I should get like a SPAC banker. I'm going to talk about the 
this because it seems like it's very fascinating. But um, it, this is kind of a big deal, right? To call this My understanding is that you know, this back, you've got a year to find a target acquisition. And if you don't complete the acquisition within that year, and I might be wrong about the timeline for that, but if you don't complete the acquisition, you've got to pay a pretty big penalty, right? Like it's a big deal. And if they have to go back, I'm, not, I'm sure they had multiple targets that they had identified, but like, you know, it takes a long time to do one of these deals. Like my sense is that it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's actually kind of problematic. For is that correct? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I really don't know what the repercussions are of, of, of pulling a SPAC like this, but I, it can't be good. So, and then the other thing in this particular case is that, the acquisition of Ludia must have been predicated on the fact that this deal gets done, right? So I don't know what the, what the what 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 they're going to be able to do with that asset. You know, do they just go become independent? You know, so this this yeah, this can't be good structurally for the SPAC as well as for Jam City. You know, yeah. but maybe someone can comment on it that has more understanding. They, 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 they said that in the in the, in the uh, venture beat article that. The, the acquisition of Ludio was contingent and that, that's what they were going to finance. And so they have to go find alternative financing for it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's gonna, that's not going to be easy. Right? Well, isn't Iron Source, uh, Iron Source, shit, isn't Jam City owned by Netmarble? So they should, you know, they have a pretty good backer. So I don't think Ludio... Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe, uh, but they, yeah. But they, they, they've raised a lot of money. You know, the valuation is, is questionable. And you know, diluting your existing shareholders by buying that by buying a relatively large acquisition for them, anyway. I don't know. It might be a challenge, but I, I'm not really close to this one all that much. So, yeah. all right, all power to Jam City. So I'm I'm, I'm sure they're they'll they'll figure it out. All right, next update. So this was actually I'll do a, a short one. So Epic Games acquires Sketchfab. And if you don't know Sketchfab, that's, that, that means you're not, you know, in day-to-day -day game development. But basically what it is, it's sort of like a community for selling 3D assets. So you can buy any kind of 3D assets from, from various artists around the world. It's a little bit like ArtStation, except more in my, like, as a non-artist, in my opinion, it was more focused on transactions. So very easy to, to buy assets for your game. And talking about ArtStation, Epic Games actually acquired ArtStation a few months back. So... My interpretation of this is that Epic is really moving towards rivaling Unity as a, you know, as a number one game engine. And, uh, and what they are doing is they are buying these companies that will allow them to add uh, content to, to their asset store, which is very important for, for game developers, especially as they're kicking off, like for the majority of game developers, not the big ones, but, but especially the small ones. So with our station and with Sketchfab, I think they will have potentially better asset store than, than Unity. And that's already a big selling argument. Big bonus when choosing Unreal Engine and moving fast to building prototypes and, and first pass of your game. And, and you know, why not even, even the, uh, the, the whole art production? So yeah, interesting move from, from Epic Games. Now let's take a little break from all these news and talk about consultants. You know, one of my biggest triggers in gaming is consultants. These big firms think they can manage game making with PowerPoints. They are literally the destroyers of studios. Don't get me wrong, it's not that these folks aren't smart. They're some of the smartest and highly educated people in the world. But they lack two key things, passion for games and industry experience. To put it simply, they lack context. One area that context is absolutely critical is consumer insights. 
As the name implies, you are trying to understand your customer and gain keen insights by asking the right questions. Without the right context, it's almost impossible to be successful. The big CI firms fall into the same trappings. Just because a firm has gamers on staff doesn't mean they know how to, what it takes to build and ship successful games. You need to work in the industry to really understand the challenges and agony that studio and marketers have to go through to bring a product to market. That's why I recommend Beta Hat. Stan Kwan and his team at Beta Hat have deep experience in the industry that provides the context needed for actionable insight. Stan's own experience includes 15 years within the gaming industry leading strategic functions at EA, GameSpot, and Ubisoft. Other research firms package up gaming and entertainment bucket or use like these old methods from packaged goods industries. Gaming is different. For game CI, you need to understand what people play, where people play, how they play, and why they play. You need to understand console, mobile, free-to-play, software as a service, subscription models. Whether it's consumer segmentation, brand tracking, concept testing, conjoint analysis, or focus testing, Stan and his team have the context to deliver exceptional insights into the gaming customer. Please reach out to Beta Hat by visiting their website at betahatmr.com. That's B-E-T-A-H-A-T-M-R.com. Now, back to the episode. A couple of more updates. So Ubisoft ended Tom Clancy's, or is ending Tom Clancy Elite Squad. So publisher is closing down the free-to-play mobile RPG in October, one year after launch of Tom Clancy Elite Squad. Uh, but before you continue, I mean, this is like such an epic disaster. Like, I mean, they did like the, 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 the quality and the production value of this game. And it only did like $4 million in revenue. Yes. Yeah. Four million. And, I mean, it's like horrendous. And, and I wanted to just bring it up. Like, I remember last year somebody asked me like, what was... I don't remember which conference or which talk was it, but somebody asked me like, what was kind of like the biggest product miss or something like that. And I mentioned this game because personally, I think the, the, uh, the developer, Ovliant, oh, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a, it's a Paris based studio. Oh, that's why dude, it's Paris. I'm telling you. Like, they it, can't make games in France, no, dude. That's no, 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 no. The, the quality of this game, the art quality, the production quality was fantastic. And listen, no, I'm going to say that I, I ran marketability tests this year, last year. So I've been, I've been seeing like what kind of art styles really, really hit the market with certain audiences. And the art style that was used by Elite Squad was really, really marketable. So the studio did excellent job on executing on this game but i think it kind of like i brought it as an update not only because i'm i have a tremendous respect towards the uh, the Oliant studio but also because last week we talked about xcom and why xcom might miss the mark and i think this tom clancy elite squad is a good example of that or a bad example however you see it it's not about the execution it's like if you don't have the product market fit with an ip towards the audience like it doesn't matter how good of a game you make which elite squad was a good no let me take that back it was well-made game it was a little bit hard as an rpg Dude, it was a turn-based RPG on mobile, dude. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah, it, it, it didn't fit the IP, but the, but I just want to say they did an excellent job. I have a tremendous respect for, for that studio. And if any of their artists are looking for jobs, holla at your boy. <laughs> because <laughs> they find out who they outsource. We have French people in our company. Join. You can talk French. Whatever it is. Uh, tremendous amount of respect to, to, to the team. But as you said, 4 million installs and 4 million in gross revenue in a year with a Tom Clancy IP. Wow, now yeah. that's that's a, that's a scary scary set of numbers. Eric uh, Suford, you had some 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 correction you wanted to make. 
Yeah, last week in the podcast, I had uh, made the comment that Subway Surfers uh, spends uh, no money on user acquisition. I think I, so I think the, the phrase I used was they never spent a dime on user acquisition. And I use, I use, but I, oh no, but I use that phrase deliberately because I believe, and I may be misremembering this, but I, it was, you know, something similar to that effect said by. The Kilo team, which used to run mm-hmm. Subway Surfers, it's got a little bit of a complicated history. There was a handover. I think like the publishing agreement ended. Cybo took Cybo was the sort of developer, I think, uh, and, yeah. and Kilo was a publisher. Cybo uh, took over complete control over Subway Surfers. Cybo is kind of led by my former boss, uh, David Byrne. Rubio. They do have a UA team. They are spending money on UA. I was uh, wrong about the fact that, or I was wrong. Um, in my assertion that Subway Surfers has never spent a dime on UA, they do spend money on UA actively. And so I just wanted to correct that, yeah. um, that imprecise statement. Yep. Every time <laughs> every time we do this on Deconstructor, a fun Slack channel, right right away, you get the feedback. I know. We, yeah. <laughs> so I, I also have a quick correction on this Netflix thing. So I immediately got a response from someone that's familiar with Netflix, because, of course, I don't cover the company and, and don't really know how they operate. But evidently, their DAU and MAU on their mobile app is really, really strong. I had assumed, I should not assume, but that they would be primarily building games and experiences for the TV product, but evidently their DAUs are really, really strong on mobile. So they have the ability and the capacity and, and the potential of publishing games directly on their mobile app and interfacing with the consumer that way. So that's interesting. On, on a separate topic, I, I, I've been reading a lot of kind of hate about what Netflix is doing <laughs> these days. It's like, I, I was relatively positive, but some people are saying that this is like folly. It doesn't make any sense for them to get into this type of business. <laughs> and like, and like, they're just saying, they're basically doing that. Look over here. We're doing games while their core business is declining, et cetera, or not growing as much. So anyway, we'll see. I'm excited for what they could do. But, but anyway, yeah, the mobile strategy is clearly a part of a big part of what they're doing. Levi is going to join again, the podcast he's been writing about Netflix. So we'll be interesting to talk about his perception on, on the Netflix, uh, Netflix games thing. He's, he's written like 20 pages already about it. So he's, he's really deep into that. Anyway, I got a final, this is not an update. This is a straight up promotion. So you like, do you want to learn how to grow your titles across your portfolio to retain users in your game with cross promotion from industry top game publisher? So say no more fam. We got you this Thursday. I'm hosting personally a webinar with supersonic the uncrowned kings of hypercasual and Blatika, the crown kings of social casino. So these two companies are top of the food chain when it comes to building a cross promotion strategy and operating it effectively. Three takeaways you're going to have after this webinar, you know how to build a cross promotion strategy that gets results. Uh, number two, you'll understand the key scale metrics. And number three, we'll give direct tips on how to keep your best players inside your portfolio and sell the not so best to other portfolios. So sign up. There's a link in the description. we got limited seats as always. And yes, there will be video shared of this webinar later. But if you join the webinar, you can actually ask questions. So it's a short one. Join. Cross promotion is the, uh, the hottest thing in the world right now. You got to understand the IDFV, the IDF whatever. You got to understand this. You got to keep your players. So anyway, this is the promotion. <laughs> can I call bullshit on one thing, right? How can you have a limited seats in a webinar, dude? That, is that oh, even a actually, thing? This is, this is a fact. Eric, tell him. 
Yeah, I mean, Zoom limits the number of people that can join a webinar. Yeah. If you upgrade, it's like 500, but if you join, it's 100. Yeah. So, so there is oh. legit limit. That's, that's, yeah, that, it's not, it's not, it sounds like a bit of horseshit to me, but okay, yeah, moving on. Pay it's, to get more. It's, leg- no. it's legit. I, I, pay, I personally paid for the MoPub upgrade. I should include that in the invoice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there right. are limited seats. That's why you need to sign up and, and, and you know, join in earlier. But I'm, I'm personally really interested in this whole cross-promotion. It's, it's been a big topic for the M&A recently, how, how companies are building the, uh, the, the content fortress that Erica has been talking about. And, and it's going to be pretty cool to get like a top hyper-casual publisher as well as top casual slash social casino publisher to talk about their their strategies. We've gone through some of the questions earlier, so it's going to be an interesting webinar. So you should definitely join. This is like not Thank even a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely join that. Definitely join that. But anyone from MoPub listening, I just remembered that I personally paid for that upgrade. So we could uh, increase, our, <laughs> increase our invoice for that. <laughs> All right. Well, we got you on that. So let's talk about, you know, enough of the funny business. Let's talk about the uh, the sad business and Activision Blizzard being sued over frat boy culture. Eric Kress. Yeah. Let's bring it down a little bit. You know, Activision Blizzard was basically sued by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Basically, they were the cause of the action was employment discrimination because of sex, retaliation, failure to prevent discrimination and harassment, and unequal pay. They're looking for compensatory damages, punitive damage, unpaid wages, injunction relief, lots of other stuff, right? And again, this is by the California state. So this is not individuals or a class action. It's basically by... Uh, the uh, Department of Fair Employment. So, you know, another tragic announcement of, of this type of activity in our space, which is awful. But I think the, the thing that, that's getting them even more hot water is their really kind of deaf response to this. And they basically said that this, this, this investigation includes distorted and in many cases false description of Blizzard's past. You know, we've been extremely cooperative throughout this process and gave them all kinds of information. The picture that this thing is painting does not represent the current workplace of today. So <laughs> this was is just not an acceptable response. Actually, Jay Allen's response was a little bit better, just more corporate speak, but still at least, you know, identify, you know, acknowledges the, the complaints, et cetera. This felt really, really Bad, bad, bad. And the irony here is that they, they knew that this was coming. So they had all this time to prepare a response and this is what we got. And so there is a uh, open letter of condemnation of this response, condemn, sorry, condemning this response from former employer, employees and employees of the, of the, co- the company. So anyway, I, I, it's, 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 it's just an awful thing, you know, between this and then Ubisoft and then Riot, all these things are, are pretty horrific. And, and as we get more and more attention to it, hopefully we'll, we'll fix fix some things in, 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 in our space in general. The actual lawsuit itself, actually reading through it, was, some of it was really, really horrible, by the way, but they only really named like two or three people in the, in the lawsuit specifically. One was Alex, who was a WoW creative director who did some horrendous act. And Jay Allen Brack, who's in, in charge of, of WoW now, of Blizzard now. And the only reference to him was the fact that he was aware of what was happening, but he didn't deal with it. And, and, and he just gave him a slap on the wrist. Alex has, has been terminated long ago. And then there's also reference to a CTO who was not specifically named, and I'm not going to do it here, but he came from, it looks like he came from Microsoft and he left pretty abruptly recently, you know, in a while back. So anyway, personally, I think this is 
obviously a, a horrific thing again for, for, for the industry and, 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 and for the PR around the industry as well in terms of its, its hostility towards women in general. What do I think is going to happen? People keep asking me. You know, I think people at HR are going to be held responsible. Jay Allen may be at risk, but not really. It's really unclear at this point. But this is not the end of the bad news. We'll likely see more and more people come forward and more account, you know, accounts of what's happened in that company be released. In the in the there is an overall outrage in the in the Blizzard community as well as the Blizzard employees. Scott Johnson, who's been running the instance for like, I don't know, 15 years or something, he's a absolutely mega fan and he is just livid about this and he's calling for a boycott of blizzard's products until it's clear that they've done something to address this so anyway i i do think it's a terrible situation that studio is going to have to go through and 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 solve on their own you know blizzard's clearly in a tough spot for a variety of reasons this does not help and but my hope in general as 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 an you know as a fan of the industry is that these cases like kind of bring awareness to the issues and call to action for other companies and in our industry and others to address these issues like HR departments and leadership putting policies in place to make sure that this type of thing uh, doesn't happen and, and, and things that can protect, you know, kind of an unrepresented, underrepresented community of women within our, in, within the industry. So hopefully this will be a call to action for them to, to get smarter and, and to put things in place to, to help protect people. So that's my my kind of take on the whole thing. Yeah, this was, I mean, naturally very sad. I actually didn't read the news because I started reading it and there was some some point made that somebody committed a suicide due to the harassment. I was like, fuck, this is too dark. I'm not going to read this. Like it was honestly, I couldn't read it because it was too dark. Overall, you know, I'm having a hard time to comment on this because, you know, I'm never experienced harassment. And let's be honest, like probably never will. And it's, it's really hard to put yourself in the shoe of, of, of you know, a female or, or anybody else who, who might be experiencing this type of thing in the studio. Like, I don't think the sort of, yeah, I, I don't even know. Like, I'm, I'm not an HR person, but I know that there has to be some kind of a rules. I know that when things happen, you have to investigate them and you have to act in an incredibly transparent way when any kind of issues occur so that sort of people can see that the, the company reacts to them and they are treated in a transparent fashion. So, so you understand what the steps are and, and they're truly investigated properly. I'm no expert on this and I'm certainly not an HR expert, but, yeah. but, but the policy should be in place for people to make, make complaints and that to be listened to and then and the, the people be punished. And I 100%. Think that's, where, that's where it's a cultural issue that these things are not being taken care of. Whether the Ubisoft situation in which it was his lieutenant, like 12 years, like, like the CEO should have known. If he didn't know, he, sh- he should have known, right? Like there's no, there's yeah. no right answer. There's no, like he is culpable, right? No matter what, you know, we, if, it, we, if the HR people didn't, didn't, couldn't let, you know, let him know, or they didn't feel comfortable, like with punishing him or they didn't punish him either way. It's, it's a bad, bad yeah, juju yeah. and bad cultural problem. So and I don't know exactly what should be done because I've never dealt with anything like this and hopefully never will have to, you know, set up these type of processes of like, how do you uh, avoid sexual harassment in your company? I understand that, you know, apparently you need to make uh, preemptive steps to do this. So I was kind of thinking about that. It's, it's hard to hard to discuss this, this without having enough experience in, in this matter. So I'll be I'll be more than happy to host once again, some kind of podcast with HR professionals and, and people who have gone through this and kind of discuss what kind of steps should companies be taking to didn't, uh, didn't to, we do an interview with that riot woman that, that we did. Was- 
it was uh, with Angela Roseburg. So yeah, it was, was one really of the, good. W- one of the best ones. We also did we also did a chat with uh, with two ladies from Supercell talking about sexism games. But it seems like this is happening over and over again. This was back in 2018. So I'd be I'd be very much interested in in kind of understanding like what kind of a setup like how do you how should you structure your company so that these things don't happen and and that that you know that there's a due process, there's a clear process and everybody feels safe inside inside the company. So no matter how high up the person making advancement is, you should be able to, you know, to to protect yourself, to be able to report that person and so forth. So again, it'll be it'll be interesting discussion and I think a lot of companies could learn from it. So please connect with us at info at deconstructor of fun and we'll set up a podcast as some kind of a panel discussion on on how to how to tackle this this ever emerging topic. So it's a quick, quick, quick kind of thought here. I mean, I don't like feel super equipped to discuss this yeah. in the same in the same vein as, as what you just said, Miska. But I think part of the problem here, and then it's not just with with this type of, of abuse, but just like sort of a general like unfavorable treatment is 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 that you know HR teams, HR orgs, especially at scale, are not designed to improve the lives of employees. They're designed to protect the company, right? I think that's one thing that people kind of yeah. miss. Um, in sort of like weighing up the, the role of, of their the HR team in their lives, the HR team is really there to sort of limit liability for any stuff like this, right? When when this kind of things happen, they are there as like a fire blanket to just smother this and to make sure that it never leaves the company, right? To get you on an NDA and to get you paid out and to get you to shut up. Right. And I feel like that's, you know, you hear, you hear about stories, not, not just of this nature, but just like any kind of stories where the employees are mistreated and the HR team was, was kind of complicit in, in sort of perpetuating the abuse there. Like it was, they just, their, their sole directive was to make sure that the company doesn't look bad. Right. And, and to, and, and to get the person who was experienced, whatever, to shut up and to leave quietly. Yeah. And I, and I just, I think like, you know, and I have tremendous respect for you know the HR's profession, but like that just needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I've worked with a bunch of HR business partners, and and they are your business partner. They are not there to, you know, take a third party view of things. They are there to help you to manage your human resources in the most effective way. But for some reason, a lot of people consider HR as a sort of a, like like a third party in this between the between the employee and the company that's a good that's a good point eric let's move on to the next topic i don't think we we have much to add for this like we are not equipped to have a a super professional discussion about this due to our limited experience so anybody again anybody with experience in in this matter you're most welcome to to join the podcast and to to have a conversation so let's talk something that we understand a little bit better. Tilting point raising 235 million to fuel expansion acquisition. So this is the uh, the first ever equity financing. It was led by General Atlantic, uh, a leading global growth equity firm with participants from strategic investors like Red Ventures and Camara. They will use the investment to accelerate its progressive tilting point will use the investment to accelerate its progressive publishing model by signing more developers in live publishing, co-developing more titles, acquiring more studios, and partnering with developers and top IP launches. 
The company currently has more than 40 developer partners, meaning that these are companies that they're scaling their games through UA, they're fund by, by funding UA and managing it, uh, or doing app store optimization for them, doing app monetization, platform deployment, and more. Then they team up with the existing partners to deepen their relationship through co-development and later M&A. Tilting One has offices in Seoul, St. Petersburg, Kiev, Barcelona, New York, San Diego, and that swanky new location in Miami. And especially like in the end of this, this article there, they talked about Tillitmoin plans to accelerate its M&A strategy. All right. Well, the caveat in the beginning, really like the Tilting Point guys. Looking forward for <laughs> Samir, their, their co-CEO to join the podcast next month, as we've, we've discussed. So I'm trying to, you know, as always, we news objectively using Sensor Tower, any public data to analyze this. So to my view, Tilting Point has exactly the same strategy as Scopely, but they just haven't found the hit games and the hit studios yet. So what I mean by that is both of the companies are pretty much of the same age. Both are publisher publishers that have evolved to co-development, then to acquiring studios when they find the success. And this is basically them, them acquiring a co-development studio is smart approach to negating the issues of live ops being sandbagged due to the revenue sharing and so forth and so forth. It's just better to acquire the other uh, developer, continue with the live ops, and then everybody has the same goal. As of today, these both of the companies are pretty much same same age. Tilted Point has roughly, is roughly of the same size as Scopely was in mid-2015. On the other hand, Scopely's revenues since then have grown 20 times. So Scopely makes 20 times more revenue per month today than it does in 2015. And Tilting Point makes the same amount of money that, that, Scop that Scopely did in 2015. And when it comes to games, guys, I just want you to guess, what is the biggest Scopely game in terms of cumulative revenue? Eric Kress, make a guess. It's a Star Trek game. Star Trek. All right. Very close. So Star Trek is their second largest net revenue at $440 million. Yahtzee has till date made about $200 million in, in net revenue, but we don't know what the amount of ad revenue is. It could be much actually larger than that. Their biggest game till date is Marvel Strike Force. It's, it's past half a, half a billion in net revenues. Now, can you guess what is the biggest game from Tilting Point in cumulative revenue? Actually, match 3D. Match 3D. Okay. I, I can't even find it here. Eric Crest, do you know any Tilting Point games? Not really. That's right. part of the problem. All right. So <laughs> Tilting Point's, uh, and this is not a knock-on. So Tilting Point's biggest game to date is Narcos Cartel War, Wars. It's sort of like a Clash of Clans version with Narcos IP. Pretty fun game. It has made about 40 million according to Sensor Tower in net revenue. So significantly smaller. And Star Trek Timelines is their other top game like it's pretty much neck neck with narcos and when you compare the uh, the star trek from tilting point that's about 40 million in lifetime net revenues and then scopely has a star trek game that is 440 million in lifetime revenue so i'm just i'm not trying to knock on tilting point here in in fact what i'm trying to do the opposite i think they have a very solid strategy i have they have great people and now they have the funding to, to go with it so that they can be more aggressive and they can start closing more of these solid IPs and acquiring solid studios to execute on this, these IPs. In fact, I really think that with the strategy they've chosen, they will probably have 20x their run rate in three years. I, I really do believe because I think the strategy that Scopely has employed is very smart. And I think Tilting Point has all the elements to employ the same strategy. 
And yeah, so I'm I'll, ta- I'll take the I'll take the the super under on that one. But I'm trying to paint a picture that that tilting point <laughs> is like Scopely was way back, but now they're they're following the same strategy, and because they've seen the the successes and and the I, failures, I hear you. But but but, but it was a different it was a different time back then. You could pick up these studios for peanuts, right, relative to what you're paying for them today. And 200 million or whatever they raise, that's not a lot of money to like scale up a business in this in this day and age, you know, when valuations are all out of control, right? I don't know. Scope so it's possible three studios for 50 just now. Oh, but those are mice nuts, right? Those are tiny, right? So, yeah, no. So we should, we'll see. I mean, they, they peaked at like 5 million a month at, at, according to Sensor Tower, and then they're down to about 3 million a month. Yeah. So that run rate's pretty, pretty low. And they have like, they say they only have like 200 employees, but I imagine, or 180, but I imagine most of them, the people that would, would, would be publishing partners, I suppose. I don't know. But most of their games make 200 to $500,000 a month. That's just really tiny, right? So we'll see what they can do. Uh, I don't know any of these guys, but I, I would be interested in talking to see what the, what, what the kind of the expectations are and what their plans are to find these diamonds in the rough that, that haven't been picked over by every other company in well, the world. Well, Chris, I want to say like the, the approach that Scopely has and now Tilting Point has, I, I really like it because you build the internal genre expertise by, by you know, hiring the, the top people in, in, in certain ex- extent. And then when you're trying to find a studio, you're really trying to find a studio that can execute on building a game in a certain genre. Like you don't have to find a studio that can execute on running these insane live ops. Like when you consider Star Trek or Yahtzee Studio, like these studios weren't killing it before before starting work with Scopely, but Scopely kind of leveled them up with their own expertise in live ops, with their own expertise in, in product management and platform and so forth. And the studios that they work with were good at building a game, like a game in a, in a yeah, certain but there's, genre. But there, uh, what, there's no evidence that Tilting Point has that capability that way Scopely did, does, right? Like they, have, they, have, they don't have any games that have made any money, right? Like it's like, you know, it's they, they, that's a long, it's a, it's, a, it's a long road. It's a long road, but I think they're on the right road. So anyways, I, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to, to, to get Samir again back on the podcast and discuss their strategy. Sufert, do you have any, any take on, on Tilting Point? Sufert? High level thoughts on Tilting Point are that, you know, its reputation has, has really sort of improved, I think, in the last like three years. What's funny about Tilting Point is like, it's gone through kind of like three iterations. It started out as like a premium label almost. They were publishing um, kind of paid games and just like really high quality AAA artisanal games. Um, like Leo's Leo's Adventure was the first kind of big hit. And then they moved into like, well, we'll do free, free-to-play live services as, as a publisher. And that's kind of what I And then they, the current iteration is like they have a big kind of and I don't, I don't know, maybe they're in a fourth iteration at this point, but like the third iteration was like they built out like a kind of like UA... Uh, infrastructure and they were doing almost like agency work and then they had like kind of service levels that were priced on that basis like so if you're we're just your agency of rec- if we're just your agency and you pay for the ua then we charge this much if we if we're the agency and we pay for the a- ua then it's it's a little bit more and then if we're the agency and we pay for ua and we help you with all this live op stuff to improve the the, the the title then it's this much and it's more like official publishing deal and then they, they they kind of followed the scope model kind of like warrants um, and basically they call options on this to acquire them. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, like the way that Tilting Point kind of sits in the market now is they're kind of like a premier destination for a company that just wants to make a game, right? If they don't really have any, you know, if they don't really have any intention of like, 
or ambition to like publish the game themselves, then Tilting Point's a really great place to land. And I don't think that was always the case. I feel like Tilting Point's in a good position, and I feel like there can only be like one or two of these companies, and maybe it's just Scopely and Tilting Point, but like those companies seem like the best position to like fill that role of like, hey, you don't want to publish your own game, um, but you're really great at making games. Let us help you bring all of this, like the, the meat of free-to-play and the meat of games as a service to your title, and we'll do all the UA for you. And, and we've established expertise as that, and, and you know, we're, we're now we're very well capitalized and we can scale a game be very big as they've proven they can do so I, I feel like you know i'm happy for them smear's a good guy i've known him for and i think that they're, they're going to be pretty successful yeah yeah I, I i agree so should we move to our last piece of new facebook ceo and why social network is becoming a metaverse company yeah this was um so there's kind of like three articles i've got here one is it was pretty i think it was pretty widely circulated was the the interview that Mark Zuckerberg did with Casey Newton on The Verge talking about, yeah, Facebook is a metaverse company. We see ourselves as a metaverse company, not a social networking company. And that was, you know, kind of just setting up this five-year vision of like the transformation of Facebook from just kind of like a social networking destination to the... <laughs> I think that's, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is it kind of also aligns with what I've been talking about for a while. In a while, being just a couple of weeks, uh, Facebook really seeming to kind of uh, distract away from the sort of short-term position that it's in with this kind of like long-term vision, right? And I think that's one. That's one kind of. You know, I talked about it last week a lot. Uh, I won't kind of retread that ground, but I think it's it's that has to be that has to be part of the reason why why they're discussing this now. Right, because I mean, you know, at the very least, like Mark Zuckerberg said, it's a five-year vision. Well, there's nothing tangible that they can really point to, right? And so it's it's very, very abstract at this point. And the fact that they did a big interview with The Verge two weeks out from earnings or a week out from earnings, to me, says that hey, they're trying to keep investors' eye on the long-term ball and don't focus on the short-term ball, right? Um, which you know, I've I've talked about that uh, at length, but that's more like you know, issues related to advertising that are like sort of like real time, imminent, immediate. Right. I, and I think what, and so there was another kind of article um, that, that came out around this, that is also kind of instructive. It wasn't really an article, but it's Boz, right? So Andrew Boz, where he runs Facebook reality labs, he, he, he posted yesterday about how they're take, they took a bunch of people from Facebook gaming, a bunch of people from Instagram, and they're building out like a metaverse team. They're standing up a whole team within Facebook Reality Labs dedicated to the metaverse, right? So like, you know, just again, just like, you know, just kind of reiterating their their sort of dedication to this idea that they are building a metaverse Facebook movie. And, and, and I think um, it was pointed out on Twitter. I don't, I don't remember who, who posted it, but like Facebook Reality Labs has something like 700 open positions that they're hiring for. Facebook, Instagram has 40, right? I mean, just, just the sort of like the restructuring of the company and the reallocation of resources is, is just stunning with, with, you know, and, and, you know, granted Facebook's run by Mark Zuckerberg. They can do that kind of stuff. But just by fiat, they're saying Facebook Reality Labs is the future of this company. And I've heard that from a number of people across the company and, and a number of journalists that cover Facebook. Right. And then, so I think there's a couple of things to unpack here, right? So there's kind of like three uh, timeframes that we need to be focused on when it comes to Facebook. One is the short term, right? In the short term, I think Facebook's going to face pain. I think it's IDFA. I think it's kind of COVID and, you know, 
opening up from COVID, you know, the, the, the sort of like easing of lockdowns. Now, Delta variant variant aside, I don't feel like Delta variant is going to instigate a number of like uh, the same the same sort of magnitude of lockdowns that we saw with the original variant. I feel like those are kind of over. And that's not me making a political statement. That's just what I genuinely believe to be true. And, and so and so I think that hurts Facebook. That hurts a lot of engagement-based companies where, where COVID was a big boost, right? And so in the short term, I feel like there's, there's pain. In the medium term, I feel like what we have to, what, what, we, what we should be thinking about with respect to Facebook's medium term prospects is content purchases. It's kind of this midterm adaption of the, Kind of previous paradigm of like capturing all these offsite conversions, being an advertising company, and and using those conversions to like optimize ad campaigns. Well, they still have to do that. This transition to a metaverse company is going to be long term, right? And so I think in the short, in the medium term, we're, we're looking at content fortresses, and I think that is probably more relevant to any sort of analysis of Facebook than the metaverse, right? That, because I, I think that's just something that we'll we'll observe happen, and that will actually impact its its sort of like its its revenue performance in the next one year, two years, right? And, and we'll see that, we'll perceive that um, as it happens. And then in the long term, you've got the metaverse, right? And I think what happens when a lot of people hear the term metaverse is they like instantly shut off, they instantly recoil. And I don't, I can't see Chris's video, but I imagine that's what's happening right now with him. Like <laughs> it is, the, the metaverse is like just marketing jargon and it's, it's marketing patois from a, a lot of people that I think don't come from gaming um, and don't have like a background in gaming. But nonetheless, see gaming as like the tip of the spear to sort of like launch this this metaverse idea, right? And so, I mean, you know, I I I even I kind of roll my eyes sometimes when people start talking about the metaverse. But what I think about what I think is lost in the description of the metaverse is that it's really not that fundamentally far from where we are now, or at least it's not that different than the trajectory that we're on now. I wrote like a three part piece a couple months ago about the future of. Uh, mobile content platforms and the, the direction that we're moving is content and content distribution is divorced from the sort of hardware form factor right it's always on it's persistent it exists in the cloud and it gets beamed down to whatever hardware device you want to consume it from so i'm watching disney plus on my tv or i'm watching it on my iphone or i'm watching it on my ipad or i'm watching it on my android device that doesn't really matter and what we're doing is we're sort of disintermediating like hardware form factor based app stores right Google Play, the App Store, they won't be that relevant in our daily lives because we're consuming this content that just exists in the cloud and is beamed down. The metaverse is just that. If I had to describe the metaverse, it's a sort of uh, persistent, always-on engagement pool uh, that you can access from any hardware device, right? Um, and that's basically what Netflix is. That's basically what Disney Plus is. That's basically what a lot of these streaming services are. Um, it's just they're not gamified in the way that we kind of think the metaverse being because we saw, we read Scoop Crash or we watched uh, Ready Player One. And so I think if you sort of just kind of put aside this marketing target and you think about like, hey, all these streaming services are going to be uh, interfaceable from kind of any hardware form factor that I like. They're going to be always on. My, my, my status there is persistent, right? I can log in, I can see my recommended shows. Now, if you abstract that to gaming or you abstract that away to like some kind of, as we talked about a few weeks ago, like some kind of reality that's divorced from my physical being that's a little bit different but it's kind of in the same direction right so just put aside the metaverse term and just think about this kind of like always on persistent economy of engagement economy of content and that's really what we're talking about and that makes total sense right? we're already moving in that direction and so I, I feel like yeah there, there's a lot there that facebook can do because they've built out the portal they've built out oculus but each, any of these given piece of hardware are not the metaverse right 
those are just potential interface uh, devices that we can use to access the metaverse or, or this persistent pool of, of engagement, right? Um, and, and so Facebook moving in that direction makes sense. I, I, I think if you wrap it in the metaverse marketing jargon, it probably resonates better with Wall Street analysts or whatever because it just feels like sort of new and innovative and, and it's the future and it's the next big thing. But like the reality is we're moving in this direction anyway. You know, there's no one real definition of the metaverse. And I think, you know, Facebook kind of pushing everyone's eyes to that far out moment is smart because I think in the near term, there's not a whole lot to be optimistic about. So, Eric, what's your take on, on like, like, is your long-term take on Facebook that they are, you know, definitely a buy in the sense that they will be able to build this metaverse, but the short-term term, tur- turbulence is, is likely to occur due to the IDFA and, and you know, end of lockdowns? I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to give, like, stock advice. I mean, my, you know, my sense, though, is, like, the kind of directionally, it's like that short-term, not, not talking about stock maybe short-term kind of yellowish red, long-term green, because I think Facebook, they are early here, right? I mean, again, I'm talking about Facebook Reality Labs. That's the big initiative for the whole company, right? And so, like, if this does play out, like, I think they want it to, and, like, it'll probably be huge. I mean, Facebook could be a much, much, much larger company than it is um, in 10 years than it is now just because of this, because they're capturing this kind of, like, new content engagement paradigm, and they're freeing themselves from the shackles of operating within Apple's world or operating within... Google's world in terms of uh, the app store and Google Play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I always come down to the same issue with all these initiatives from these big tech companies is that they always have a content problem, right? And they, they can throw as much money as they want at it, but building content is freaking hard, you know? And 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 the amount of people and that are going after the talent that can build content has gotten ever so larger over the last four or five years. And so the competition is fierce, for those kind of skill sets, right? And so that makes it even more challenging to find people to make content, to make your metaverse or your service or whatever you're trying to build your platform, whatever you want to call it, make it compelling. And then convincing the established players to spend their resources, you know, like the big publishers, big developers, to spend their resources on building content for your platform, your metaverse or whatever, that's even more of a challenge, right? Because they're going to go where the money is. You know, EA and Activision take two. All these guys are building games for consoles with hundreds of millions of install base and 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 willing to spend. I don't think there'll be a time in which EA is going to dedicate resources to build things for Netflix or build things for Facebook. You know, and so maybe in the in the in the long future when they actually build a metaverse, then they will, but not not to help build their platform, right? So anyway, that's always my longer term issue with these these announcements of platforms you know and and but we'll see if they can overcome that by building up their own infrastructure to support their their platform at facebook and netflix for that matter all right that does it like share subscribe let us know what we got wrong this time around and we'll do a correction for the for the next week eric enjoy the island and Eric Cress, enjoy the new mask mandate. Just kidding. <laughs> Coming. <laughs> All right. Later, guys. See ya. <laughs> All right. Everybody have a good good week. We'll, t- we'll be here next week. Bye. Bye.